0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do too.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the world warms and the ice melts, civilization will face some dramatic changes in the level of the oceans. On the long term, and we're really talking about millennia here, we
2: expect sea level rise of two meters for each degree of global warming that we
1: cause. How to prepare for seas at least 15 feet higher. Also, comparing the relative safety of pipelines and trains to transport oil. And why some advocates say we have to get over the aversion to insects and eat them.
3: Look at the future. Look at what's coming our way. It's really kind of terrifying. Nine billion-plus people in 2050, which is not that many years away. And none of the experts have explained where all that food is going to come from.
1: Grasshopper Snacks and Katie Did Crisps? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers
1: of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The recent spate of oil transportation accidents is fueling debate over how we should be moving fossil fuels. A messy tar sands oil pipeline spill in March in Arkansas was followed by the July 6 derailment of an oil train in Canada, which incinerated the center of a small town in Quebec and left 50 people dead or presumed dead. The train was bound for a refinery in New Brunswick loaded with 72 cars full of crude oil from the fracking boom in North Dakota. These disasters raise questions about the relative safety of trains versus pipelines to transport oil, and Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has been investigating.
0: The use of trains to transport oil has skyrocketed in the U.S., up 160 percent in the first quarter of this year compared to last. A large part of that rise is due to the development of the Bakken oil shell formation in North Dakota, In April of this year, North Dakota exported nearly 800,000 barrels of oil a day, compared to just 80,000 barrels a day a decade ago. Three-quarters of the crude left North Dakota by train, and as fracking technology continues to make the oil more available, that amount is only expected to go up. That's according to this statement from the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers.
4: The tremendous expansion of U.S. oil production and the lack of adequate infrastructure due to a costly permitting process ensure more use of rail to ship crude oil east to west. To meet the demand, producers have made significant investments in the infrastructure necessary to transport crude oil by rail. Rail safely and capably transports thousands of people and commodities every day without incident.
0: When it comes to the safety record of transporting oil, trains and pipelines are essentially the same, says Brigham McCown, the former head of the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration.
5: When you look at total volume, pipelines do have a little bit of an edge in safety, but, you know, we're splitting hairs in uh, thousandths of a percent at that point.
0: Both trains and pipelines have a safety record of better than 99%. However, because pipelines transport 96% of oil in the U.S., they are responsible for many more spills each year. Just the day before the Canadian accident, for example, a pipeline in Montana spilled 25,000 gallons of gasoline on the Crow Indian Reservation. The Association of American Railroads says in the last decade, more than 470,000 barrels of oil were spilled by pipelines versus just over 2,200 spilled by trains. And there's another way pipelines are superior, says McCown. That's carbon emissions. A
5: pipeline is like a one-way street. When you get to the end, there's no return trip required. So when you look at the carbon intensity of a locomotive, and even though they're very efficient, you have to make that 12 to 1,500-mile trek, and then you have to turn around and bring the train back.
0: Trains traditionally made that trek carrying coal, but demand for coal is falling as natural gas becomes cheaper to extract. So the railroads are happy to have oil companies as a new customer. But McCown says it costs much more to transport oil by train than pipeline.
5: For about a thousand mile journey, a pipeline uh, will add about $5 uh, a barrel onto the cost and railroad would be 15 for the same amount.
0: So pipelines are slightly safer, cheaper, and produce fewer carbon emissions all arguments cited by supporters of the proposed Keystone XL pipeline to bring Canadian tar sands oil to the Gulf Coast refineries. The State Department report on Keystone calculated that the Alberta oil would be extracted even if Keystone isn't built. The oil company TransCanada would just transport its oil by railroad. But Kate Calarulli, director of the Sierra Club's Beyond Oil campaign, says that argument
6: doesn't hold water. The State Department's analysis has been um, roundly criticized as being out of date and not based on current market information. Just recently, Goldman Sachs, they're one of several different industry groups, um, financial industry and oil industry groups that have come out and said that Keystone is actually a linchpin for tar sands expansion. Rail is not necessarily a viable alternative for economic and technological reasons.
0: And if rail transit isn't a viable alternative to Keystone, critics argue that the pipeline project is essentially dead.
6: Because the tar sands have been shown to have much greater climate consequences, it would be a mistake to continue to invest in expanding the tar sands.
0: Indeed, Kalaruli says choosing between oil pipelines and oil trains is the wrong approach.
6: I worry about some of the news reports I see that are suggesting we have to choose between pipeline disasters or rail car disasters, when in truth we have the technology to dramatically reduce oil use and thereby reducing the harm our reliance on this fuel causes.
0: But following the disastrous runaway train in Canada, authorities are reevaluating the safety of moving oil by train. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom.
1: Concern over the climate is also feeding the debate over fossil fuel transport. In the Pacific Northwest, there's controversy over proposals to carry massive amounts of coal by rail from Wyoming to new export facilities in Oregon and Washington. And now the train tragedy in Quebec has officials rethinking plans to lease and develop a new deepwater oil terminal for the West Coast. Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix has been following these developments and is on the line from Seattle. Hey, Ashley, tell me about these plans and what's going on now.
7: Well, Steve, the same oil that was in the train that exploded in Quebec is also moving through the Northwest. This is oil from the Bakken oil fields of North Dakota. And there are now 11 places in Washington and Oregon considering building terminals that would take the oil off of the trains and put them onto ships bound for West Coast refineries. So this is not small change when we look at capacity here. When you combine all 11 places, you're looking at 700,000 barrels of oil moving through the Northwest every day. And to give you a sense of perspective, Keystone XL is 830,000 barrels per day. So we're definitely within the same ballpark here. And the largest of the proposed terminals in the Northwest could be built in Vancouver, Washington. And this terminal would handle up to 360,000 barrels per day. That would mean 70 trains coming through the Columbia River Gorge every week carrying that oil to and from the Bakken oil fields. So the tragedy in Quebec has definitely given the port commissioners pause as they consider the lease to have this terminal built. That's for sure. But that being said, my sources there say they're still optimistic that the terminal will go forward and they're going to be having a vote later this month and potentially postpone the review a little bit. But there's a very good chance that that terminal could still be built.
1: Ashley, but even if oil could be carried and, and a terminal developed safely, the whole notion of that kind of development needs to be at odds with the pledge that President Obama gave about Keystone regarding oil in his climate change speech on June 25th.
8: Allowing the Keystone pipeline to be built requires a finding that doing so would be in our nation's interest and our national interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution the net effects of the pipelines impact the net effects of the pipelines impact on our climate will be absolutely cr- critical to determining whether this project is allowed to go forward It's relevant.
1: But the president's views may not be so relevant in the Northwest when it comes to the coal export question. How was Obama's climate plan received there?
7: Well, you hear a lot of applause on that recording, and there was a lot of applause in the environmental community out here as well. But I think there's a really interesting angle of his speech that's missing, something that a lot of people in the Northwest are also watching, and that is this export of fossil fuels through the Northwest. When you talk about the potential, if three proposed coal export terminals are built out here, of doubling U.S. coal export capacity, there's no mention of that in Obama's climate plan anywhere. What are the CO2 impacts of exporting that coal and potentially that oil as well, as we were just talking about? about. So it's great for Obama to make a statement about what are the potential impacts to Americans of something like Keystone XL. But meanwhile, fossil fuels seem to be sort of sneaking out the back door of the country and the president is is making these lofty statements. But we're not really hearing that in terms of any sort of consideration of climate change in the review of these proposed export terminals in the Northwest. And most recently, the Army Corps actually testified on this issue before a House subcommittee. And the representative said that, indeed, no, climate change is not going to be factored into the review of the largest coal export terminals proposed for the United States. This is Jennifer Moyers with the Army Corps of Engineers. The appropriate application of our regulations have led us to the conclusion that the effects of the burning of the coal in Asia or wherever it may be is too far removed from our action to be considered as an indirect effect or cumulative effect of our action itself.
1: That's Jennifer Moyer of the Army Corps of Engineers. And what she's saying seems pretty clear, but I'm confused as to the science because any molecule of CO2 anywhere adds to climate change. How was that response from the core received in the Northwest?
7: Well, first of all, you're right, Steve. Any molecule does contribute to global warming. And Representative Waxman of California fired right back at Jennifer Moyer and said, well, what about the fact that the Army Corps is responsible for the waterways of the United States? And if you're dealing with sea level rise, that's arguably already making your jobs harder around the country when you look at places like New Orleans, for example. And here in the Northwest, the Army Corps' statement was a real blow to environmental groups who have been watching the coal export debate. However, as you might imagine, it was received very well by the proponents of coal exports in the Northwest. One interesting thing, though, that's emerged from my sources is that the Army Corps is overseeing these coal export projects as a co-lead agency with the State Department of Ecology. And the State Department of Ecology was not consulted before the Army Corps made this announcement before Congress that they were not going to consider climate change in their review of the coal export proposals. And so far in the review process, the public has submitted thousands of comments in the pre-scoping process to say, yes, we want climate change considered in the proposed export terminals. And so for the Army Corps to make this announcement without talking to their co-lead agency is a little bit of a shot across the bow. And it will be interesting to see how these two agencies work together to oversee these proposed coal export terminals. And Steve, I've been taking a close look at the climate change implications of these coal export terminals. And one of my sources is Dan Jaffe. He's an atmospheric scientist with the University of Washington. And he says, make no mistake, the climate change implications need to be taken into consideration here.
5: If we don't consider the climate impacts from burning coal, whether it's
1: here or somewhere far away, pretty much the climate game is over and we lost. That's Dan Jaffe, the University of Washington. Ashley, tell me, what's the mood of the public about these uh, projects, especially the coal terminal project?
7: This has been a hugely divisive issue. It's really interesting traveling through towns along the railways, especially along the I-5 corridor that runs up Puget Sound. This is the route of many of the coal trains that will be heading to the largest proposed coal export terminal. And you see signs in people's yards, you know, both pro and against. And EarthFix has commissioned independent surveys, public surveys, to try and get a sense of what the general public is thinking about these coal export terminals. And back in 2012, 55% of people actually supported the coal exports. But in a most recent survey we did in June, 41% support them. So we're seeing a dip in the public support for coal exports in the Northwest. And interestingly enough, when people were surveyed back in 2012, people said that the more they knew about the coal export terminals, the less likely they were to support the proposals. So that shift may already be showing up in our numbers if you look at the results from 2013 and then look back at the results for 2012. It's a really interesting debate that's only going to heat up more as the review process continues here in the Northwest, Steve.
1: That makes things difficult for coal and, of course, for oil. The horrific accident also must have the public concern.
7: Yes, I think when you combine these two and you look at potential impacts to rail infrastructure and traffic, as well as safety in the Northwest, you know, the climate change story is the big picture story. But there's some very real local impacts that people are following and starting to get a little bit more concerned about in this region.
1: Ashley Ahern is with the public media collaborative EarthFix in Seattle. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Steve. Coming up, 15 feet and counting, the unnerving amount of sea level rise that's inevitable with just two degrees of global warming. That's next on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is near to completing its fifth assessment on the potential environmental and socioeconomic effects of global climate disruption, But in the meantime, there's a new study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences led by a team from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. This new research quantifies exactly how much sea level will rise due to global warming over the very long term. Anders Leibermann is the lead author of the report and he joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. So, how much sea level rise are we looking at as a result of climate change? On the long term, and we're really
2: talking about millennia here, two thousand years is where we where we looked at. We expect a sea level rise of two meters for each degree of global warming that we cause, for example by the emission of carbon dioxide and methane.
1: That's on the order for us Americans of about seven and a half feet. Uh, yes. But if we're looking at say two degrees centigrade rise in temperature over the next hundred years, that would mean on the order of 15 feet of sea level rise. um.
2: But not within the next 100 years. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which is going to publish its next assessment report by the end of the year, and of which I'm a lead author, is generally focusing on the next 100 years. And the sea level projections that we obtain for different climate scenarios range between 20 centimetres and 2 metres. For a warming of 2 degrees, we expect on the long term uh, sea level rise of the order of four meters and more. But this is not going to occur within the next hundred years. It'll take a long time for the sea level rise to occur. What exactly are the factors causing the sea to rise? There are four main contributors to sea level rise. One is obviously the thermal expansion of the ocean. Warm water simply takes more room, and that's why the ocean is rising when it's warming. And the others are all glacial in the sense that the ice is melting or getting into the sea in form of icebergs. And there's mountain glaciers, which are shrinking at the moment, but have about half a meter of sea level equivalent stored in them only, and then there are the big ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, and uh, these have huge amounts of ice, equivalent to about 60 meters of global sea level rise.
1: Do your projections show the rise in sea level uh, equally distributed around the world's oceans, or do you expect to see more of a sea level rise in some places than others?
2: If you take into account the ice loss from Greenland and Antarctica, both have the effect uh, that the tropics are going to rise over proportionally, they're going to get higher than the global mean, while the high latitudes are going to be slightly less elevated.
1: And why is that? Temperature?
2: No, it's actually because um, of, the, of the dragging force of the ice masses which are vanishing the ice is pulling the water towards itself uh, on Greenland, for example, but also on Antarctica, similar as the moon is pulling the water on Earth towards itself and uh, therefore cause the tides, right? In a similar fashion, Greenland is pulling the ocean towards the Greenland ice sheet. When you reduce the Greenland ice sheet, you reduce this drag, this pulling, and um, therefore sea level is dropping in the vicinity of Greenland But because there's more water altogether, it has to rise somewhere else even stronger, and this is generally in the tropics.
1: Now, another expected effect of climate change uh, includes more large storms like uh, hurricanes. I would think even a small rise in sea level could be significant when you're talking about uh, a major hurricane or a tropical cyclone.
2: Yes, as, uh, we know this actually already, the, um, this has been computed for the tropical storm Nargis that entered Myanmar, or former Burma, in 2006, where people calculated that it went much further inland because of the additional 0.2 meters of sea level rise that we have Um, seen in the last century. Now, other studies showed that if you elevate sea level around Manhattan by a meter, then a storm surge that you now expect every hundred years to occur would then occur every uh, three to four years. So, you can see that there's a strongly what we call non-linear behavior here. So, you get much more floodings than for even a small amount of additional sea level.
1: 2,000 years seems like a long time, but it's about as old as, say, Christianity or uh, even less time than, than other civilizations and, uh, and religious traditions. Presumably, hopefully, humans are still around at that point. That's hope, yeah. What's the advice you have for us going forward as a civilization?
2: At the moment, I'm looking at a map of the UN cultural heritage sites on the planet, and you see a lot of them uh, built at the coastline. Uh, these World Heritage Sites are very often much older than a hundred years. They are several hundred years old and sometimes even in the thousands. So if you want to preserve the cultural heritage of, of society, then you want to mitigate climate change to a level where it doesn't threaten our coastlines. Certain societies like the small island states in the Pacific, but also Countries like the Netherlands will have to abandon certain regions or elevate them to higher levels. And otherwise, we'll just have to um, try to build higher dike and um, and hope for the best.
1: Anders leberman is lead author of the report issued in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. He works at the Potsdam Institute in Germany. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Now, we report on quite a few awards and prizes here at Living on Earth. For instance, the Goldman Prize that rewards people who work to counter an environmental challenge, or the MacArthur Genius Grants that often feature extraordinary humanitarians. But we learned of one recently that's rather outside our normal beat, but still sounded interesting. So, we sent Living on Earth's Helen Palmer to check out the HALT Prize.
9: It all started back in 2009. Ahmed Ashkar, a 22-year-old Palestinian-American, was studying at the Boston campus of the Hult International Business School.
10: And this was following the collapse of the financial markets and really the meltdown on Wall Street. So there was a common um, kind of mood amongst business schools that they were the root cause of uh, a lot of the problems that we saw in our financial global economy.
9: And that realisation, that it was business school graduate types like him that had broken the global economy, led Ashkar to a kind of crisis of confidence. Then in marketing class one day, he was sitting at the back, not paying much attention, and the guest lecturer was Charles Kane, the CEO of One Laptop Per Child.
10: He talked to us about the ability of turning profits by selling products, as they do in looking to solve global education challenges through the delivery of affordable uh, laptop computers. And the aha moment hit me that there is an opportunity of actually doing good, bridging borders and, you know, having social initiatives that actually turn profits.
9: That revelation led him to found the HALT Prize, a challenge to business school students from around the world to dream up a workable plan to solve a global problem and create a viable, scalable business at the same time. Ashkar networked. He signed up fellow students. He tapped the Hult Business School alumni from all the school's five campuses in places as diverse as Shanghai and London. He got the endorsement of President Clinton's global initiative and he managed to create an endowment for an annual million dollar prize.
10: Fast forward four years, we are the world's largest crowdsourcing platform for social good and we are the world's largest student competition. Uh, there's no initiative in the world that seeks to collectively use the power and wisdom of the crowd to solve social issues.
9: And the HALT competition has taken on huge social issues. Education, housing, the water crisis. This year, over 10,000 students set about trying to meet the challenge President Clinton had set to devise a practical way to cut food insecurity and hunger in slums within five years. From all the entries, 268 teams were chosen to compete on the same day in regional finals in one of the cities where the Holt Business School has a campus, Shanghai, Dubai, London, Boston or San Francisco.
0: Signore e signori, benvenuti.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fourth Holt Prize Regional.
9: <laughs> on a spring day this year, 48 teams competed at the Museum of Science in Boston, Each team presented its solution to the judges in one of five rooms, which each produced a winner. The Atlantic Room crowned the Harvard Business School's plan to fortify and brand the cheapest rice so it could be sold inexpensively in the developing world by slum entrepreneurs.
1: We want to supply daily rice to targeted slums. More than that, we want to provide almost all of the recommended dietary intake of key vitamins like vitamin A, niacin, iron, and we can do that by fortifying the rice. So quantity, quality, accessibility, and affordability.
9: The ideas the winning teams came up with were ingenious and various. For instance, a novel method of food distribution. Our team's
3: called Ubuntu Box, and we're from Georgia Tech. Um, We made up of Kristin Daniels, uh, Vinayak, The Pacific
9: Room's winner was the French business school, HEC Paris. Their plan was to train women in slums to raise fish and greens with aquaponics. Women, they said, proved more reliable.
5: And they will be working for us, they will be trained and they will be paid. And at the end, they receive the training not only on how to operate aquaponics, but also on food safety, what is important, what need to look for, um, how they should eat. So it's an entire package. And at the end, they will also get to take home 10% of what they produce or what we produce.
9: The final winning team in the Milan room came from Canada's McGill University with an idea based on breeding and raising crickets in slums. Crickets can eat table scraps, they can be eaten whole, or animal protein from the insects could be used to enrich flour. They call it power flour. And they'd harvest the chitin in the crunchy insect exoskeletons for agricultural and industrial processes. Their scheme provoked plenty of audience response for their two minutes of question time, and questions like, have you eaten them?
8: Would you believe we always get that question? Uh, So far, none of us have tried them, but our partners, uh, our research partners have, and they say they taste like almonds.
9: And asked somebody else, are they halal?
8: Okay, so yeah, of course, get Muhammad to answer this question.
2: (laughs) Uh, the answer is yes Uh, if you're interested I can quote scripture or uh, different schools of thought on the matter but we actually considered halal we've considered kosher uh, we've considered vegetarians of course who simply don't eat insects of any form but we still we still given all of that I mean we found that
5: there are in fact yes
9: (laughs) (laughs) at that point the judges went off to weigh up the finalists and decide which team would get to face off with the other regional Hulk Prize winners from Shanghai, Dubai, London and San Francisco. And a local a cappella group entertained the audience.
8: You don't know
4: me, but I'm your brother.
9: Finally, the judges came back. And Charles Kane, whose lecture as CEO of One Laptop Per Child inspired Ashkar to dream up the Hulk Prize in the first place, got to announce Boston's winner.
2: And without further ado, um, McGill, you're going to New York.
9: That was the sign for everybody to head to the reception, where there were no crickets to eat, but I did find one of the judges. Cheryl Chamberlain works for EMC Corporation, and she said it had been hard to choose a winner.
7: That was the hardest part, is listening to these amazing young people that have creative ideas and new ways of solving this problem that we're looking at, making sure that we can feed the world. It's so hard to decide who should come first and make a decision.
9: In the end, Chamberlain said, all the judges agreed on the McGill team and their small cricket farms in the slums.
7: So the idea of taking crickets and using them for a food source going forward, farming those crickets, eating them whole, looking at different ways to use them, because they give protein in a different way that we have not even considered before. So it's really innovative and watch out, there'll be crickets flying around your town and we'll be grabbing them and using them for sustainable food.
9: As for me, I grab members of the winning team. Uh,
10: I'm Gabriel Mott from McGill NBA. I'm Mohamed Ashur, also from Miguel's MBA program. I'm Zev Thompson, Miguel MBA.
9: And we're missing a couple of them. I hope Jesse
10: Perlstein and uh, Shavita Astor.
9: Each of them had taken on a different task to get their plans and presentation together, depending on their expertise, they said. For instance, Mohammed, the team leader, studies medicine as well as business. Shavita is a joint legal and business student, and Zev Thompson had a unique role.
10: I would say that my role was to disagree with almost everything that anyone said <laughs> yeah. and try to provide, you know, scepticism to everything and to try also I did a lot of the scientific research in the background with, uh, I mean really we all did everything, I think, it's, it's tough to really split it along lines like that but, but that was my main role.
9: Mohammed was pretty sure he knew what his team had that made it stand out and win.
2: I think it's because we bring together a very complementary set of skills that we challenge each other within the boundaries of a high level of respect, and uh, that our hearts were really into this, especially as we approached this competition.
9: Now the Canadian team and the teams from Barcelona, Manila, Cape Town, San Francisco and London that won regional finals in the other Hult School cities are spending their summer refining and polishing and honing their plans to make them as airtight and practiced and perfect and actionable as possible. McGill's Dev Thompson.
8: And then at the end of the summer we pitched in New York to the Bill Clinton Foundation, or the Bill Clinton Initiative, sorry. And uh, and then the, the winner of the five teams gets a million dollars to, to trigger their initiative, but honestly after having the entire s- summer to focus on refining our project, whether we win or not, we all are committed to moving forward with this project.
9: And that's part of the aim of the HALT Prize, to spark initiatives that can help solve global problems even for those teams that don't win a million dollars to make it happen. It certainly worked for these MBA students and their venture, the Aspire Food Group. So watch out. Tiny cricket farms will be coming to slums worldwide soon, providing power flour and roasted pepper and lime cricket chips. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Boston, Massachusetts.
1: There's more on the Hulk Prize at our website, LOE.org. And coming up, putting theory into practice. We get to chow down on crickets and some other creepy crawlies. And we even have some recipes. So stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham
4: Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. Supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. And Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization recently published a report that recommended insects as a viable solution to food insecurity, even in relatively wealthy countries. Now, the whole idea may turn the stomach of many, but the report was welcome news to the small U.S. community of insect-eating advocates, or etymophagists. One of them is Dave Graser, who's been running an edible bug business called Small Stock Foods since 2009. Living on Earth's intrepid reporter Emmett Fitzgerald
11: joined him on a bug hunt in Rhode Island. Dave Gracer has eaten all kinds of bugs.
3: I've had about uh, 60 or so species of arthropods, most of them insects, but I've had scorpions, a giant
11: centipede, and uh, isopods, which are those roly-polies, which are quite good. He's not a gross-out fanatic or a former Fear Factor winner, just a guy who thinks that eating insects makes a lot of sense.
3: I don't believe that there is any food production paradigm that can produce nearly as much food so efficiently as insects.
11: Gracer is an edible insect advocate and the owner of a business called Small Stock Foods in Providence, Rhode Island. He collects edible bugs and sells them to brave eaters around the country. Much of Dave's stock comes from Asian, African, and Central American markets in Providence and Boston but today he's going hunting in the park. So we
3: are in uh, Johnston, Rhode Island. This is Snake Den State Park. What I get from here are several species of grasshopper, a couple katydids,
11: dragonflies. Which he catches with a butterfly net and a couple of mason jars. Dave and I set out into the meadow. As we walk, he tells me he eats insects because he believes that our current food system is unsustainable.
3: From my point of view, the way that humans feed themselves now basically represents a big middle finger
11: to the natural world. As the global population continues to rise, he says, food security will only become more of a problem.
3: Look at the future. Look at what's coming our way. It's really kind of terrifying. Nine billion-plus people in 2050, which is not that many years away. And none of the experts have explained where all that food is going to come
11: from. Dave thinks that at least some of that food should come from large-scale insect farming. Many cultures have long traditions of eating insects, which are high in protein, vitamins, and amino acids. Several countries, including the Netherlands and Thailand, already grow insects on a commercial scale.
3: There's something like 20,000 cricket farms for human consumption in Thailand.
11: Dave says that if he had the money, he would invest in insect farming here in the States. But for now, he's content to volunteer his time.
3: I mean, I'm an adjunct at a community college. How wealthy am I? So if I could plug $20 million into this, I would. But instead,
11: all I can do is 20 million hours. We follow a mowed path skirting the edge of the field. Red-winged blackbirds balance on the tops of milkweed, and bumblebees flit among the blossoms of an autumn olive. We poke our heads into the branches, and Dave spots a snack. Now, oh, just, there's one. Let's see. I don't see it yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, now I do. It's a stink bug, Dave says, but don't be fooled by the name. They smell like soap and taste like cilantro.
3: Stink bugs are eaten in many parts of the world. They're called jumiles in Mexico. And uh, in fact, there's a there's a particular region, particular city, in which they have a stink bug festival. And there's a day
11: of the stink bug. Dave pulls out his jar and leans in.
3: So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the jar below and the lid above there.
11: You had to have gotten that I guess one. guess we got that one sealed on him. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He caps the jar and we walk on. Dave will put the bugs we catch into his freezer or they'll die within about an hour. They may be small and alien looking, but Dave says he sometimes feels bad about killing insects. They're animals, you know, they prefer to avoid dismemberment or death, just like you or me. But all in all, he thinks that killing a few bugs is a more natural way to get food than slaughterhouses or industrial farms.
3: I am reacting to these insects the way that any other predator would. So it's an honest exchange of energies. like, you know what? If I can get you, I will.
11: Dave catches a few more stink bugs and nabs a grasshopper with his bare hands. As we reach the end of the field, he spots a bright purple dragonfly perched on a rock.
3: Uh, See, see? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
11: All right, I'll go for that. All right. He pulls out his net and begins to stalk his prey. I need you to step. I got him. You got him? I got him. That was pretty good. So you kind of, you swiped right above it. I anticipated where he was going to be. Dave slips the dragonfly into a plastic baggie with the rest of our haul. As we walk back to the car, he reflects on a good day of hunting. So, this was some good stuff.
4: Yeah, this not was some... bad.
3: It's not bad. Not bad. Yeah. We have three types of insects that offer us three types of taste experiences. And in terms of overall numbers, we have eight stink bugs, plus two grasshoppers, plus one dragonfly.
11: We drive back to Providence and the headquarters of Small Stock Foods, Dave's house. He takes me down to the basement where he keeps his stores. Dave opens the door to his freezer. It's filled with plastic bags and milk jugs, each bursting with legs and wings and antennae.
3: Here, these are giant water bugs from Thailand. They're called mengda. Here, I have part of a large order of grasshoppers from Texas. Oh, here's the scorpions right here.
11: Small stock foods is no big business. Dave only fills about 10 orders a year. Most of his bugs go to avant-garde restaurants, novelty party planners, and other clients looking for a little shock value.
3: Dos Equis had a sales campaign, a promo, the most interesting tacos in the world to go with the most interesting man. So they were gourmet taco trucks in a couple different cities that wanted to do the most interesting tacos, and they wanted scorpion tacos.
11: But Dave says, recently, some people in the United States have begun to think of insects as a serious food for the future.
3: There are companies now working to produce industrial, commercial supplies of insects for human consumption
11: in the US. And that is as of the last 18 months. Farmed bugs could be eaten as proteinous snacks or ground into flour for baking. Dave thinks that someday, insects will be space food.
3: You know, recently, Stephen Hawking said, we need to explore space because this fragile Earth will not sustain our species. We're not going to have cows on on, on Mars. We're not
11: going to have cows in the space station. But the future of insect consumption depends on our willingness to eat them. Most people crinkle their nose at the sight of a cockroach, but Dave says the hardest bug to eat is your first. He takes me up to the kitchen and lays out a handful of crickets and katydids on a sheet of tinfoil. I squirm a bit in anticipation as he puts them into the toaster oven. So this is a house cricket. A house cricket. All right. Here I go. It's kind of like shrimp. But the legs get stuck between my teeth and I need some water. A katydid from Uganda is coming up next. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Really good. Yeah. Oh, that one's one's delicious. It's kind of, it's really salty, really fatty. That's like a cross between a crouton and bacon. Dave says he likes to snack on katydids with an afternoon beer. But for me, I'm not sure they could ever replace tortilla chips or popcorn. Dave says that's not the point. I've never claimed
3: that insects taste better than other foods. I prefer sushi and duck and pastrami and lasagna and ice cream (laughs) and
11: cheese and so many other things. But in time, he says, people can learn to incorporate insects into their diet. After all, they're really just land shrimp. In his presentations, Dave asks people, "If you're willing to eat arthropods like shrimp, why not a grasshopper?"
3: And I go into the amusing revelations about what crab and shrimp and lobster eat, which is trash and feces and dead animals, as opposed to what grasshoppers and caterpillars eat, which is
11: salad. Before I go, Dave gives me a small bag of bugs to bring home. On the stoop outside my house, I recruit a few reluctant tasters. They think the katydids are all right.:
8: Not bad. tastes like it's cooked in butter, isn't he?
0: Hmm, tastes fine. Like shrimp fries, like seafood.
11: But they aren't so sure about the crickets. Uh, <laughs> the that one's kind of gross.
0: You can like feel the organs and uh.
11: Insects may well be the food of the future, but for most of us, they'll take some getting used to. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald.
1: And when it comes to edible insects, there is the big challenge. How on earth should one prepare six-legged food to appeal to two-legged diners? Well, that's where David George Gordon comes in. He's the award-winning author of many books about animals, including the Eat a Bug Cookbook, which is exactly what it sounds like. He joins us now from Seattle to explain the joys and benefits of entomophagy. Welcome to Living on Earth, Mr. Bug Chef. Great to be here. Thank you. So tell me, when did you
8: first start eating bugs? What's the story of when you ate your first one? You know, I got interested in the subject probably in about the mid or, you know, towards the end of the 1990s. I had actually been collecting information for another book I was working on called The Complete Cockroach. And that book had a little bit of everything about you could possibly know about cockroaches, including people who eat them. So, while I was gathering information on that, I wound up with a really fat file folder called Bug Food. I actually went to an insect fair in Seattle and they were serving a Chex mix with crickets in it and was pleasantly surprised. They were quite tasty. So, that was my first bug that I actually ate on that long, was now turned into a 15 year journey.
1: But give me the case now for why people should be eating insects. Actually, of course, we should say that we're talking about arthropods because there are spiders in your cookbook as well.
8: That's right. And scorpions and centipedes. So I say insects and their kin. Um, You know, there are a number of compelling reasons to eat bugs. First of all, there's health benefits. They're very rich in protein. They have lots of vitamins and minerals, they're low in fat, and they have amino acids that you might not get elsewhere from your normal diet.
1: Talk to me about why bugs are more efficient converters of a protein than, say, fish and uh, poultry and, and meat.
8: There's a measure of the value of food that's called an ECI rating. That stands for the efficiency of conversion of ingested food. So the ECI rating is very poor on things like uh, cattle. You give a cow 16 pounds of grain, you'll get one pound of steak eventually. And you also need to give that cow thousands of gallons of water over its life. Insects, on the other hand, have much higher ECI ratings. If you give certain insects, oh, I don't know, two pounds of grain, you'll get a pound of insect protein back. So that's way less wasteful than trying to raise cattle. Some insects don't even need water. Things like mealworms actually get their water molecules from breaking down the carbohydrates they're eating in granaries. So the whole idea of farming insects locally has become a a much more popular idea.
1: So, David, tell me how unusual is it to eat insects?
8: Well, we're kind of the oddballs because we don't eat insects. I've read reports that say 80% of the world's cultures do eat some form of land arthropod. You know, we're talking about places like Mexico, South America, Australia, Africa, just about everywhere but Northern Europe and a lot of the, you know, colonies, that would include the United States and Canada. In that FAO report, they say there's actually 1.9 billion people who are eating bugs right now. You gotta
1: admit though, David, that some in- insects really are well, they're gross. I I I wouldn't want to eat a dung beetle, for example, or 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 some bug that had been exposed to pesticides. I mean, what are some of the hazards associated with eating insects?
8: Well, pesticides are definitely a hazard. And you know, I mentioned in the Eat a Bug cookbook that if we got into hand picking and eating the pests, instead of just spraying them with bug spray, we could actually get two cash crops from the same acre of agricultural land. I would always advise people to eat bugs that have been cooked thoroughly. There are potential parasites and germs that could be passed by eating raw bugs. And the same thing would be true about chicken. You wouldn't want to eat raw chicken or raw pork for those very same reasons. The other hazards I would say, well, Probably a, a primary concern is some people are actually allergic to bugs. Now, how would they know that if I hadn't been eating bugs before? They would also be allergic to shellfish. So, if you went to Red Lobster or some place like that, had the all you can eat shrimp feed, and you felt itchy afterwards, well, you'd probably have the same reaction by eating grasshoppers or mealworms or what have you. How did you start presenting the concept of etymophagy to the public? Well, I do cooking demonstrations, and I've been all over the place at museums and science centers and schools. You know, I've gotten a pretty good reception for my cooking demos, but I've noticed there are like three different kinds of people in the audience. There's some people there who are, I'd say, they're fussy eaters. They say, no way, I'm just here to observe what you're going to do. There are other people who are more like the I'll try anything once group. <laughs> Californians are a classic example of that. And then there are a third group, and I get the impression they actually got up hours earlier and drove a long distance, and they can't get started fast enough. They're like, when are you going to serve the bugs? Now, let's see. I'm looking at your cookbook.
1: There's some recipes here for everything from bugs in a rug and really hopping John and ants in pants and cream of Katie did soup. And I have to say, though, that most of these aren't like cream of Katie did soup. They're more quite... Well, they, they put the insects right in your face. You know, there's no hiding what's, what, what's in the ingredients. You're, you're going to see it. I mean, you have a salad with ants all over it, for example.
8: Yeah, that was a conscious decision on my part. I've talked to people, though. You know, they're boasting to me. They said, oh, I went to a French restaurant and had escargot, snails. And I say, well, that's great. What did it taste like? And their answer almost uniformly is uh, garlic butter. Because they've been seasoned. I kind of would like people to be able to say, well, they taste kind of like slugs, but a little more piquant. <laughs> I really wanted people to be aware of what they were eating and what it tasted like. So not only did I not cover up the bugs, I also didn't want to bury them in elaborate sauces or over-season them. So I'm looking at this photo in your book. It's got to be
1: one of the best photos here. It's for fried green tomato hornworms where these giant
8: bright green caterpillars rest on top of breaded tomatoes. So, yes, I chose to make sure that the hornworms in that recipe are really prominent. They're big and green to begin with, so it's hard to conceal them.
1: And they'll show up in your garden
8: if you have tomatoes out there. And, you know, if you can't beat them, you should eat them. That's my motto. Let's see. Chirpy checks Party Mix. That's a delicious one, and that's sort of my homage to what got me started in the first place. It's basically a Chex mix that you can make yourself, all sized proportionately with the bugs. And then I like to use uh, oven-baked crickets. These are crickets that I've purchased. They've been frozen, defrosted, and baked on a cookie sheet. Mix those in with that snack mix, and you get quite a satisfying little crunch there. Hey, uh, David, before you go, what's your favorite recipe in the book? I really like waxworms. These are animals that in the wild, as caterpillars, actually feed on the wax and the honeycomb in a beehive. When you actually roast them, they taste like pistachio nuts. It's like, what's not to like? So I have a recipe in this book for white chocolate and waxworm cookies. If I did prepare those and offered them to you in a blindfold test, you'd probably want another one.
1: And if I had to look at it?
8: Well, you might have qualms there, because, you know, we've just been trained to think be distrustful of anything that's caterpillar or worm-like in shape.
1: So, what, in 50 years, uh, how do you see people getting their protein?
8: I think what you'll see in labels, I've already seen this, not necessarily about insects, but they say animal protein. It doesn't say what those animals are. They could be sea urchins, for all I know. But in actuality, I think they'll start doing that with insects. So I think insects will be reared commercially. I think they will be used as an ingredient in a lot of our foods, as supplements, uh, what have you, to bolster the idea of getting a little more protein from your meal. But I also think they will be served as delicacies, just like they are in these other countries where bug-eating reigns. And people will actually have, I hope, become more sophisticated and learn to get over their fear and hatred of insects and start enjoying them like the rest of the world does. David George Gordon is the bug chef and author of the Eat a Bug Cookbook.
1: David, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. This has been great. And if you want to try eating bugs for yourself, there are some recipes on our website, LOE.org. next living on earth heading out into the darkness net in hand in search of stealthy night flyers there's something kind of magical about being out at night with all kinds
11: of
3: biodiversity everything from the size of a pinhead up to a moth as big as your hand
1: celebrating national moth week and much more next time on living on earth Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ansi Bruch, Aaron Weeks, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding
4: for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms www.redtomato.org This is PRI, Public Radio International.
1: PRI, Public Radio International.